Okay, so I kind of gave it away. Um, what's, what's up, Brian? Oh, no, thank you. Thanks for asking. We just run that for the uh, nursery so they can see. So, you know, this is Lent week. We start Lent on Ash Wednesday this week. I'm just curious, how many of you grew up in a church culture or a context where Lent was a very intrinsic, definitely a necessary, a big part of your process every year in your calendar? Oh, there's a lot, a lot more than the first service. Um, in how many of you had some exposure to it? You're kind of aware of some things. It wasn't a really big deal, but maybe you've had like on a moderate exposure to it. So that's a few of you. How many of you grew up in, and your whole church culture, maybe you had like no exposure, you heard of it, but you don't really know much about it. Yeah. So there's a few. That's me. That was my story. I literally had to come to Colorado to learn about Lent because I grew up in a very fundamentalist, independent, very strict, very rigid Baptist church culture. And the last thing we would ever be caught dead doing was anything that was Catholic. You know, I mean, that was like the worst case scenario. And so it was very interesting. And I grew up in South Bend, Indiana, which has a couple of Catholics, obviously because of Notre Dame and its whole culture there. So we heard about things, but were never exposed. And it was a lot of like this big division. And Lent was this mystery to me. Now, you may know some about it, but what I thought we'd do today is we're going to do some historical trajectory. We're going to find out a little bit about it in the church, in its life. We're going to ask some questions like, what, how does it tie into to the entire process of fasting in the Old Testament? What does the New Testament give us? And we're going to try to learn a few things, and maybe that will enhance some things for your experience if you come this Wednesday night. So... We're going to just start with the history. Now, how many of you have this volume? You probably all have this. It's about this thick. It's the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church. You all have that on your... No, I have that in my office. And it's actually an extraordinarily helpful volume because it lays out some things. It gives some information from the Roman Catholic position, from the Church of England position, and from the Eastern Church. They're very thorough at, at doing that, which I really appreciate. So here's their description of Lent. Lent is generally observed as a time of penance by abstaining from festivities, giving, and by more than the usual time devoted to re religious exercises. Since Pius X, the beginning of the 20th century, in the Roman Church, more emphasis has been placed on these aspects than on physical fasting from food. It's an interesting... So you already hear there's a trajectory going on. The first three centuries of the history of the Church, we have very little information about a Lent process or a fasting expectation as part of the church life. For three centuries, we have almost nothing. Um, then you, there were a few places that it's referred to that they would fast maybe a couple of days during the Holy Week between Palm Sunday and Easter, and that was about it. Then we get to the Council of Nicaea. Now that is a very famous event that happens. A lot of people think, oh, what they were doing was deciding which Gospel of Thomas they should throw out of the Bible. That's not what they were doing. There's a whole lot of things other than that. But one of the things they definitely did, it's in the canons of the Council of Nicaea, that there be a 40-day fast beginning 40 days before Easter in the church. 
And where that showed up from, we really don't know a lot of data about that, but it's, it's pretty intriguing. A 40-day fast was not an uncommon model because when you stop and think back, Moses had a 40-day fast, Elijah had one, Jesus had one, Paul had one. There, there, so it's not an uncommon concept. Daniel probably uh, had a 40-day fast. We don't have complete proof of that. But why it shows up then, we don't really know. And it was very much about restriction from food. And that went on till about the ninth century in the church, that it was all about food restrictions. You don't eat this. That's actually when they started writing down a lot of things about, well, you can eat fish at this time, you can't eat this, you can, you can eat some of this. It all kind of formulates in that period. And then we kind of come along and come to the 20th century. 1966, the church declared, here's their, our official posture on Lent. You fast on Ash Wednesday... And then you fast on Good Friday, and every other day in between is optional. So that's the position of the church now. But one of the interesting things when you actually study it and find out about it, the core of the idea of Lent, even though they they talk here about penance, we'll get to penance in a minute, the core is really the fasting process, a giving up of something. It's about that idea. So then I ask the question, this is what happens in my brain, and you have to come with me because I'm the one who's leading this morning. I ask the question, so where did they get that idea? What is the Old Testament, what is the history of the Jewish people, the Hebrews, tell us about fasting? How many of you think that there's a lot of references to fasting in the Old Testament? Oh yeah, there's a few brave souls. There's actually quite a bit in the Old Testament about fasting. The uh, word there in Hebrew, very much meant a sense of giving up something for a religious purpose. It almost always was related to food, which when you think about their situation, their culture, their scenario, that was a very big deal to them. So that was a natural thing to give up. Now, what's interesting, though, is why they did it. The religions around them, the religions in in Egypt, in all around the ancient Near East, had these senses of this. First of all, if you're in mourning, you've lost someone, then you fast. But here's why you fast. You fast because there's evil spirits that are now want to come into your body. That's why you do it. So you fast because they believed very much that the, the pleasures of life were the conduits for the evil spirits to affect them. So they fasted for that reason. They also would, would do it at times where they would say, wow, we have really messed up. We're way out in the weeds. We need to repent. We need to humble ourselves and uh, put ourselves before God and say, we have sinned and let you down. God, by the way, often very much react, responded to that and said, thanks. That's good. That's a good work. That is worthy. And they also would fast when they had a sense of, we need some help, we need some information here. We need some guidance. What do we do? We don't know what to do. Um, the Philistines are kicking us around and we're in big trouble. Uh, the, you know, the Babylonians are right over the hill or the Assyrians are right over the hill. What should we do? So they would fast to get information from God. And often we would see that God would respond to that type of fast as well in the Old Testament. So you kind of say, well, okay, this is good. This is actually helpful. You see that it's 
a piece of the puzzle. Now, in the law, the Mosaic law, does it, do any of you know, you literally get 50,000 extra points for your team if you know the answer to this question. What was the one day of the year that was a required fast in the Mosaic law? The Day of Atonement. Yeah, boy, there's all kinds of extra points going out today. Good work. Yom Kippur, in the fall, that was the only required day for fasting. That was it. But as the trajectory of the kind of the culture, the cult of the religious practice of the Jews moved along, they added fasts at different times for different reasons. And we come through the exile, we come through a lot of different times, and a lot of pieces are added in. By the time you get to Jesus' day, you know what the expectations were, the expectation for fasting were for the most religious people, specifically the Pharisees, the Essenes. They fasted two days a week at that point. So, I mean, there was a lot of add-ons. In the process, God never approved a fast for the sake, you would call it like an ascetic reason to say, oh, I want to uh, punish my body, I want to get away from, I'm trying to, you know... uh, put myself in the worst physical position and pain and whatever. God never included, approved, never nothing in a fast that had that culture to it. And that's been a big part of the culture of fasting in our churches since Jesus. So that's an interesting part. They definitely did not get that from the Jews. But we get to a place where Jesus comes along on the scene and this is the culture that he enters with fasting. Now, I don't know at that point where you would say, well, so what now? What, where does fasting fit in? How is fasting important? How does, it, how does it work? So we should look at what? We should look at the New Testament and find out. Now, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's named after the number 70. Who knows what that's called? Septuagint. Yeah, the Septuagint uses a Greek word, that actually picks up on the Hebrew phrase for fasting, the idea of religious, cultural fasting. And that same Greek word is used for fasting in the New Testament. So this helps us connect the dots. Interestingly, in the New Testament, there's only 21 times that that word shows up. And over half of the total times are in what book? You get extra credit for that. Matthew, right. Whoever said Matthew, that's exactly right. Matthew gives us the most information by far about fasting. So let's look at that. If you're like me, you want to know, so how does the New Testament connect the dots to fasting with the Old Testament? And here we have this section in the Sermon on the Mount. If you were here for some of that series this summer and into the fall, we talked about how Jesus was describing being a kingdom of God type person being a chosen one, a holy one, in the new process. So in Matthew 6, verse 1, it says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus grabs a sense of some merit. He says there's some value in this. And actually, your Father notices this. 
But he's going to clarify some things. He starts first when you give to the needy. You, you know, there's a whole section on giving alms. When you pray, that's the section where the Lord's Prayer is and so forth. And then we get to this next section in chapter 6. When you fast... Don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Have you seen this before? I have in the past. People, like, they're almost like, oh, this is so miserable. I'm so bad. I'm, I'm fasting. Life is so bad, right? Uh, it's not a very common thing in our culture because it's not very acceptable, but it seemed to be very common in their culture. Truly, I tell you, those people have received their reward. Okay, so the people around you who felt pity, that's your reward. Is that what you wanted? Okay, well, that's what you get. But when you fast, interesting, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting. Now, let me tell you, this is the part of the ancient culture. And remember the climate. You know, what's the climate like around Israel, Egypt, all around in those deserts. It's super hot, super dry. So what they would do is they would take olive oil, they would put it in their hair, and then they would let it come down and they would wipe it onto their face and put it on their body. It was their moisturizing cream. That's how they moisturize themselves on a regular basis. The pagans around them, in the, definitely in the Greek culture, definitely in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's world in Babylon, we have evidence that they would then take dirt and cake it into the oil so that you could tell, oh, I am now fasting because I've got all this dirt all matted into me. The Jews never did that, but what they would do was they would just not put the oil on and then now you've got this super dry person who yesterday had oily skin and you could tell. It was obvious that this person is now fasting. And so what Jesus is saying, put, you know, go ahead and take care of yourself like you normally would because what you're not trying to do is do this for some big show. This is not an outward fast that means nothing. Not interested in that, neither is your Father in heaven. But, you know, and, and that's where he goes on and says it. And then you'll receive what you are hoping to get in the way of a connection or whatever the, the purpose is behind your fast. Your father will see it. Okay, that's important. Now, next chapter, in chapter 9, actually, we have this little section where the Pharisees, so the people who are fasting twice a week, see Jesus eating with tax collectors, sinners, people. And they're very surprised. They say, your teacher, eat with tax collectors and sinners to the disciples. This is the, the culture, the thinking, the climate of what Jesus is going to respond to related to fasting here in just a second. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, how does that speak to some of the penance concept of fasting. It's like, I, I'm not all interested in you just punishing yourself for your sin. And if you stop and think about this, literally just do this with me just for a second right here in this passage. Does it really make sense that animals dying and their blood being spilled is going to do anything to affect, in a cause-effect way, the, the disasters that have been caused by people's sin? Does that do anything? It really doesn't. It's symbolic more than anything. 
even the death of Christ, when you think about it, didn't go back and repair all the evil that had been done in the world. That's not what it's about. And so penance and the idea of you're fasting and you're trying, whatever you're doing, you're trying to like put yourself through some kind of a situation to earn something from God, it doesn't even make any sense. And that's what Jesus says here. I've come to call the righteous, not the righteous people, but sinners, people who recognize their sin and are fully aware of that. These are the people who are around me. And the next sentence that Matthew says is then John's disciples come up and ask, so why is it that the Pharisees fast and we fast, but your disciples don't fast? Which is a reasonable question, but it's in the context of this scenario. So look at what Jesus says then. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? You get a sense fasting is reasonably connected to mourning, right? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from the nest, and that's appropriate. You hear what Jesus is doing? He's saying this is where it makes sense. You fast related to mourning. You fast related to an awareness of your sin. But what you're not going to do is fast when you're supposed to be celebrating. The rabbis had a law that if they were teaching or definitely if they were fasting or involved in something and a wedding celebration came by or there was a wedding that was planned close by, they had to clean up and start clapping. They had to celebrate because the idea was celebration trumps Morning. That's a principle. And Jesus follows up on that and he gives us a couple more analogies. Don't put a new patch on old clothes. Don't pour new wine in old wineskins. It's not appropriate. It's not the way things work. And fasting has some traction, but not in an inappropriate way. And definitely not just to show off to other people that you're making yourself miserable because of your sin. That doesn't make sense. Now, that's over half of the words in the New Testament about fasting. Now, let me just stop and ask you this question. If fasting was a crucial, necessary, critical, absolute, just foundational element of the life of the church, wouldn't you expect that in the writings about the church that there would be a lot of data and information about fasting? Think about the letters of Paul. He is clarifying things about the gifts of the Spirit. He's clarifying things about how to have leadership. He's clarifying all kinds of things. Paul never mentions fasting. Think about Peter. Writes things to the church. Tells them how your life should be lived. What holiness looks like. Peter never mentions fasting. John not only never mentions it in his letters or Revelation, John doesn't even mention this fasting process in his gospel. John never mentions it. The writer of the Hebrews never mentions fasting. It's somewhat informational, isn't it? But we do have two more things, and I think it's worth just a quick look. So, Ryan, if you'd put these up. In Acts, at the beginning of the process of the gospel going out, we have this, there's a church in Antioch, there's a bunch of leaders, while they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them out on their very first missionary trip. The next chapter says this, 
Then they returned on their second missionary trip to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, strengthening the disciples. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom. There is their message. And Paul and Barnabas appoint elders for them in each church. And with prayer and fasting, they commit them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So both these situations, there's a commissioning for a special job. There's a purpose being engaged. Fasting is a part of it. After that second one in Acts 14, fasting is never again mentioned in the New Testament. Now, here's what probably happens in your brain. If you're like me, you're saying, well, that's very interesting. So in essence, we had fasting as a big part of things. Jesus comes. He gives us some traction on it. They practice it, and it's written down twice, almost as a passing thought. And it's never mentioned in any of the discussions about the church. If you're like me, you might say, well, then fasting has got to be stupid for us. Why would we do that? It doesn't have anything to do with the church today. We do not need to fast whatsoever, so fasting, I'm not going to do that. That would have been very much me, <laughs> my approach. It's like the Bible. The Bible gave us a little bit of traction, but it seems like it gives us an out. Or you might be the other person who says, well, if we read the Bible, we've got to believe the Bible, we've got to obey the Bible. The Bible says, Jesus used the word when, when you fast, so clearly... There's a reason why we should. And even if it doesn't make any sense to me, and even if they don't talk about it to the rest of the church in the New Testament, we should be fasting. That should be part of it. And Lent gives us a good opportunity to do that. You might take that posture. Here's what's amazing. This is such a classic example. As Jim and I have both been talking now for years about this idea of being free, having freedom in Christ. This is a perfect example. It's just like what happened in Acts 15 when the church leaders came together and said, how Jewish do we need to make these Christians? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to follow Shabbat? Do they need to follow the kosher? What do they need to do? And how did they figure out, first of all, what amazing thing was different about them that was true of them as Christians as followers of Jesus, after his resurrection and ascension, that was not true prior to that, what did they have? The Holy Spirit. It changes everything. It literally does. It doesn't undo the meaning of things. It doesn't say everything prior to that was a total, complete and total waste of time. As some people in the church have tried to do since then, we should throw the Old Testament out. We don't need that stinking book. No. What it does is it changes the whole thing. Because Jesus made it very clear right before that passage in 6, in chapter 5, at the end, he says, look, if you think I came to obliterate the law, that was not remotely my message or my mission. I came to fulfill the law. Not just live it, but actually complete it, accomplish it, bring it to its conclusion of what it was trying to point out. And what it was trying to point out is you have no way as human beings to make your way to God. God has to come to you bottom line. And not only have I come and have I accomplished atonement, accomplished the 
exchange between God and human beings because I'm a human being as well, which we'll always try to figure that one out. But I leave you, God, within you, the Holy Spirit. This is an unbelievable thing that now they're trying to figure out. So how does this factor into all of these practices that we have done religiously all along? Does it automatically just say, we don't need to do any of that. Forget the law. Forget. Not at all. If anything, Jim has been doing for us along this whole holiness series. He has been giving us a sense of, actually, these laws make sense. There are things that we can do. And if we ever could do it, we have a much better chance of engaging with them as people who have Holy Spirit inside of them. And not only do you have the Holy Spirit individually, you have the Holy Spirit communally. We've been given gifts, we've been given information, approaches, understandings, ways to see and believe, and also see the depth behind and what's going on. And we have church now to work through all of this. That changes things. And we have the word. I'm going to point at this thing because I have like 27 versions of the Bible in this thing. This crazy little piece of metal, right? Unlike most people in all of human history, we have, not only did the church get like the second arrangement, the testimony, the testament, but the church has actually had gone through the time in history where we have so much access to this. We have the word, we have the spirit, we have the church. Unbelievable difference. So now what we can do, instead of just saying, well, fasting is unnecessary, so we don't need to do it. Or saying fasting is totally talked about in there, so we've got to do it. We have freedom in Christ to make a decision about it. You can be redemptive in your fasting. You can actually make sure that your fasting is not just accomplishing something that is just to check a box religiously, but actually is engaging. It, it may involve some sense of repentance, but it doesn't have to be penance. You don't have to punish yourself for your sin. It may involve some sense of Calling out, refocusing, calling out to God. But you have the Holy Spirit inside you, so you don't have to use fasting as a mechanism. And it may actually be a way that you can reach out to others. Let me tell you this one story. It's, uh, my friend Rick uh, lives in Indiana, so I'll call him Rick Indiana. Then you'll, you'll feel better about that. Rick uh, came to me one day, and he said, You know what? Some help. I need some questions, some good like discussion starters that would let me have a discussion with somebody about faith. I was like, that sounds awesome. Tell me a little bit more. I'm curious. He said, well, for years, I've been carpooling with these same knuckleheads. I got these two guys. They're Christians too. And we drive for about 35 or 40 minutes between central Indiana down to Indianapolis. And what we listen to is talk radio. How many of you listen to talk radio? Uh, you don't have to admit that to me. Okay, so talk radio, we listen to this, and this is back in the day when Rush Limbaugh is in his heyday and a bunch of stuff, so this is going on. So this was their set procedure every day in the truck. But he said, here's what I decided I'll do. Lent is about ready to start. And we've got a fourth guy who is joining our carpool team, and he's not a Christian. And he said, I've been thinking about, so how... 
how can we actually be like the most effective in our time in the vehicle? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell the new guy that I'm dropping radio for Lent. I'm going to quit for the 40 days. I'm not going to have my radio on. And he said, what I really want to do is just start some conversations. Because he said, what I'm afraid is, if we just listen to Rush Limbaugh every day, there's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing to be punished about. Well, maybe, ah, forget it. But the, whole, the, the truth is, this is not an inherent evil that Rick has in his life, but he's saying, here's an opportunity for me to be redemptive with giving something up because there's a better chance to engage with someone else and I want to take advantage. And I'm going to use Lent as the mechanism and say that this gives us this period of time. I was like, now that's redeeming Lent. That's what this looks like. That's not just... I don't know, got to fill in some kind of blanks. That is actually seeing, that's the freedom in Christ that we have with a mechanism like a fast, whether it's a brief time or an extended time, we have the freedom to actually say, wow, this could be powerful. How could God use this? And I guess that gives us an opportunity to ask the same question. We're, Wednesday is the start. Is there someone in your life is there a family member, a co-worker, a friend that maybe you could intentionally give something up that would get their attention enough to go, huh, and you can have a different kind of conversation and Lent be a vehicle. Now we're getting somewhere. Let's pray. Lord, thanks. Thanks so much for uh, helping us along the journey and through the trajectory of history giving us a sense of what things are really all about. We're sorry when we have uh, misinterpreted, misapplied, misused your uh, design mechanisms that you gave to us. But fasting is an amazing one. We can benefit from it in a lot of ways, sometimes physically, which is great, sometimes emotionally in our, in our attachment to things, sometimes uh, mentally in our focus, and sometimes in an engaging way to where it can make a difference in somebody else's life. If you have that in mind, give us some guidance and direction from your spirit, from each other, to uh, find a way for that to be true. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.